Now, last time in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we closed out, if you'll remember, with looking at the two symbols of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost as Luke wrote it down. And what were those two symbols? Wind and fire. Let's say it together. Wind and fire. He used those two symbols to describe the Holy Spirit. And so he hadn't changed any today. When he blows through a place, you don't know where he came from or where he's going. He, he will fall unexpectedly, as Jesus said. And suddenly a bunch of people will be saved by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, and you can't control him any more than you can control the wind. And um, then fire, of course, is... I was called to preach not by some voice. It could have been a voice, but it wasn't. But it was a fire in my heart that was just kindled and lit by the Holy Spirit. And so I knew by the burning in my heart, didn't the disciples say, did not our hearts burn within us? While he walked with us by the way and and opened to us the Scriptures. So the Holy Spirit is a spirit that has, I call it Holy Ghost heartburn. You don't need a Tums for it. You don't want to get rid of it. Amen? Now, the Spirit of God, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, dramatically fell on the 120 gathered in the upper room, and the falling of the Spirit was the church's birthday, and it ushered in a brand new dispensation, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to pick it up on verse 4. I want you to read this with me because this is a very controversial verse. But let's read it. Are you ready? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I'm going where the angels fear to tread right off the bat here. I am. Thank you. (laughs) Now, let's just look at the Scriptures because that's really all that I have to say is what the Scriptures say. The word for filled here, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit is from the Greek word plato, not Plato or Plato, but Plato, meaning to fill to the limit, to fill to the maximum. It's the idea of you got a cup and it's not half full, it's not quarter full, it's not three quarters full. It's filled to overflowing. It's filled to the brim. That cup can't hold another drop. That's the word filled. God doesn't want us kind of touched by the Holy Spirit. He wants us filled with the Holy Spirit where we can't handle anymore and then um, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, the same Greek word, just just to let you know the power of this word, Plato, uh, it's used to describe the disciples' boats being filled with fish after Jesus' command to cast on the right side and they brought in such a harvest of fish, such a catch of fish, there was no more room in the boats. They had to call for their partners in other boats to come and help them because their boats couldn't handle one more fish. Same word, filled. Or in Jesus' parable of the wedding feast, when it says it was filled to the capacity with people, same word, filled. It's when you can't fit another thing in a vessel, and that's filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, it says that then they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we have amongst us uh, every denomination known to man. 
I did it on a Sunday morning. I named every denomination, uh, denomination I could think of, and a number of people raised their hands with every one of them. But most were Baptist and Catholic. I don't know why. I'm glad the Catholics are here, and I'm glad the... Now, I was, I was saved by the preaching of a Baptist preacher. I owe my salvation to a Baptist preacher. But see, if you take this verse into a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a Lutheran church any of the, and ask them to speak on it, you're going to get different messages. You're going to get different interpretations. So let me just share with you what I believe it clearly teaches uh, because there's hardly a more divisive issue than this one uh, amongst some. I believe the Bible is clear that there are two kinds of tongues, and I'm going to show you why. Earthly dialects as manifested on the day of Pentecost and a private prayer language. Now, I'm not going to spend the whole night on this, but I am going to show you what I believe it teaches. Now, the word here for tongue is glossa, glossa. We get the word glossolalia uh, from this one, and it simply means a tongue. Now, it says that they spoke in plural tongues, does it not? They began to speak with other tongues, plural, glossa. Now, let's take Pentecost first. At Pentecost, God supernaturally anointed the 120 with the ability to speak in an earthly dialect that they had never learned. It's like if I started talking to you in Russian right now, that would indeed be a complete miracle. You should all hit the ground and start praising God if I started speaking in Russian. Because I don't know a word in Russian. And yet, let's just say the Spirit fell, and there were a bunch of Russian people in the audience, and the Spirit fell on me, and I began to speak in Russian, having never learned it, and I was speaking the marvelous works of God and the work of the cross. That's the kind of tongue that happened at Pentecost. The 120 who were primarily blue-collar workers, you know, the working class, the run-of-the-mill, average, guy-next-door types were suddenly anointed with the supernatural ability to speak in an earthly dialect that they had never learned. And it was multiple dialects because on the day of Pentecost, there were multiple ethnicities and multiple um, languages represented there. And so this 120, suddenly, after the, the tongues of fire appeared over their head and there was the sound of the rushing mighty wind, they let loose with the gospel in languages they'd never been taught. So much so that here's what the people surrounding them said. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, that's the first kind of tongues when it's an earthly dialect. It's an earthly language. But then in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, Paul speaks of another kind of tongue clearly, irrefutably in 1 Corinthians 14, 2. Here it is. For he who speaks in a glossa tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now, I want you to notice with me. No one understands him. Well, if no one understands him, it can't be an earthly dialect. Because he says, does not speak to men, but to God. 
for no one understands him. Well, that can't be the Pentecostal tongue because the Pentecostal tongue, manifestation of tongues, they all heard in a language they could decipher and understand. Now, I believe that it is this kind of tongue that Paul is talking about when he says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you, 1 Corinthians 14, 18. Now, I scoured the book of Acts, and I can tell you I can't find a place in the entire book of Acts where Paul the apostle was used in the way the 120 were, where it says he spoke in a tongue he had not learned, and others understood him in a tongue he did not know, but he was speaking by the Spirit. It's not anywhere in the book of Acts. So when he says, I thank God, I speak in tongues more than all of you, he can't be talking about the earthly dialect. It's not there. Now, let me tell you what I believe the difference is. The earthly dialect kind of tongue, according to the story of Pentecost, was a sign to unbelievers. They said, we hear them speaking in a language they've never known, the wonderful works of God. It was a sign to them. Because don't forget, Peter's about to stand up to preach, and he's he's going to scalp them with the message he preaches, and a bunch of them are about to get saved. So this was a preceding sign. Okay? But the private devotional kind of tongue is for personal edification. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14.4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Well, wait a minute. The purpose of the Pentecost tongue was so that others would understand you uh, as you preached the gospel in a language you had never known, and they could be saved. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a tongue intended to be understood by men. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Well, was that the purpose of the Pentecost tongue? No, it wasn't to edify themselves. It was to reach all those people. So, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So clearly we have. Now, I could spend all night. I could go through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 on this. Um, I've had a prayer language since I was 18. Now, you notice it is not a front burner issue with our church. I don't get up and preach it. I don't tell you you don't have the Holy Spirit if you don't have tongues because I don't believe that. I'm sort of a tweener. I'm kind of in between the Baptists and, the, and our blessed AG brethren. The like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble on the radio here. But the assemblies of God will tell you, you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you're speaking in tongues. You know what? I can sit down and fellowship with them and love them because with the basics, we're in line together. We're unified. The the blood, the cross, heaven, hell, Christ, the only way. I can fellowship with them. But I can also sit down with a Baptist or a Methodist who thinks tongues is of the devil because my fellowship isn't based on tongues. It's based on the blood and Christ, our Savior. That's where my fellowship is. But I can tell you that, that when I was sitting in my apartment when I was 18 years old, learning three guitar chords, C, G, and F, so I could sing God is so good and Kumbaya, way back in the early 70s, I got a prayer language before anybody told me it was wrong. 
and I pray in my prayer language often. And when I do, it edifies me. But never will you hear it as a front burner issue in our church. But I cannot get away from the clear fact that there's two different kinds he's talking about. So, Pastor Jeff, do I have to speak in tongues? No, you do not. Um, You get to if you want to pray for it. Do I think you're less spirit-filled than me? No, not at all. You'll never, listen how silly that is. Billy Graham doesn't have a prayer language. You're going to tell me he's not spirit-filled? I mean, I can go back through history. And, and name some of the greats of the faith who didn't have a prayer language. Were they less spirit-filled than someone who does? No. No. So the reason I'm not spending much time on it is because I don't need to spend much time on it. But I did want you to see the difference. So let's move on from tongues. Everybody give me a tongue and say amen. amen. All right. Now, when this spiritual explosion took place, And they all heard the wonderful works of God uh, proclaimed in their native language. Uh, The attention of the huge Pentecost crowd was immediately fastened on the disciples and this 120. I mean, the whole Pentecost festival, everybody forgot about that. And they're all looking now at what is taking place in front of them. This spiritual nuclear bomb that was dropped when the spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and the church was born. And Peter, the one who had denied Christ, and this blesses me, the one who had denied Christ, who had said three times I never knew him, who felt so horrible about his denial that he went, tried to go back to his old life and go fishing. Of course, he didn't catch anything because you never catch anything when you go back to your old life. Don't try it. You'll find you catch nothing. But Peter is the one the Holy Spirit fell upon and said, stand up, it's time for you to preach. We see here the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. After assuring them that they weren't drunk, because some were saying, look at them, they're drunk. He said, no, we're not drinking wine this time of day. And then he started preaching. Now, I marvel at what came out of this fisherman. You talk about being the Holy Ghost. He immediately starts preaching Scripture like he's the one that wrote it. He said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, every eye is fastened on him. Look what he goes on and says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he was just getting warmed up. He perfectly quoted the prophet Joel. Now I want you to notice a couple of things that Peter says here. He says that this outpouring is a prophetic fulfillment. And we all know Joel's prophecy. Um, But he said this is prophetic fulfillment happening right in front of your eyes. And then notice that he said that Joel said it would happen in the last days. And Peter said, this is that. So what Peter is doing, and I want you to catch this, is he's saying the last days have begun. Now, we have a tendency to say, 
Well, the last days began with us because most people are very narrow in their scope. They think a lot of things happen just in their lifetime. But, but Peter takes us all the way back and says, no, here's when the last days be- began. In the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. After that, the hourglass was turned upside down of the last days. And the last days began then. So well, then where are we, Jeff? We're in the last of the last days. We're in the last of the last days. But the last days have, have been one long last days, 21 centuries so far. And I don't think Peter would ever have imagined that or envisioned that. But he said, this is that, this is that. When Joel said it's the last days, this is that. Now, this prophetic fulfillment of Joel's would be accompanied by an outpouring of the word of God and a flood of fresh revelation. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men are going to see visions. Your old men are going to dream dreams. If you're having visions, you're young. If you're dreaming dreams, you're old. It would also be accompanied by a flood of salvation and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Peter's sermon next went straight to the quick when he accused many of the listeners of being directly responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Boy, I mean, he was bold. The guy that denied Jesus in front of a little girl at a campfire now lets it go when he's full of the Holy Ghost. He says, fellow fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, you saw what he did. You heard him. You saw the miracles yourself. This man, listen to what he says now, folks. This is theologically profound. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You, he's pointing his finger now, you, you killed him. Now here, follow me, we have one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. Something that's very hard to understand. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. Notice Peter said, Jesus was handed over to them. By who, everybody? By God. And God's what? Deliberate plan. Didn't Paul tell us in Ephesians, Jesus was chosen to be our lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before time began? This deliberate plan was hatched in heaven before time began began, which means before anything material was created, because there is no time unless something is rotting or eroding, okay? Now, according to Peter, even though it was God's deliberate plan, those who handed him over are still personally responsible for killing him. So you have sovereignty versus personal responsibility. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right to think it because this is a mind-bender. This is one of those theological principles that's a mind-bender. It'll it'll turn your brain into a pretzel. How can it be that God determined it 
and God handed him over, but they are still responsible. If it was God's determined plan, who can resist God? And yet they're still responsible. God's sovereign foreknowledge, listen carefully, does not absolve man of personal responsibility. You say, Jeff, how does that make sense? It doesn't have to, just accept it. This is one of those things you can't, you, you cannot, because it's a paradox. God's sovereign knowledge, foreknowledge, he knew ahead of time, does not absolve man of his personal responsibility. Peter said, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, and if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell for it. But wait a minute, Peter. It was God's determined plan. Who can resist God? You're still personally responsible. Here is the mystery of God's providence, everybody. While Jesus' death on the cross was part of God's eternal plan, it did not in the least excuse, let me name some, the sin of Judas in betraying him or of Pilate in condemning him or of the Jews in crucifying him, nor did it at all infringe on the liberty of their wills in acting voluntarily. I know it doesn't make sense. I know. I can tell by, not to me either. Logic cannot take you here. This is one of those things where you've got to accept what the Bible tells you. (laughs) Let me give you another example. Joseph's, Joseph's brothers... We've been reading this this week and are going through the Bible in a year together. Joseph's brothers wickedly, evil, with evil intent, sold their little bro into Egypt, into slavery. Yet the psalmist comes along and says, God sent Joseph to Egypt. Well, wait a minute. They did. No, God did. No, no, no. I, I, I read it. They did. They hatched the plan. They took the money. They sold him. Yeah, but God was working his plan through their evil. What that means is that you can't escape the determined purpose of God, yet we're still responsible for our own actions. If you're not responsible for your own actions, how in the world can he send anybody to hell? And yet, his plan is going to be worked out. See, when you got saved, God didn't sit up in heaven and say, oh, my Lord, I cannot believe he came in. (laughs) God already foreknew you coming in. He saw you coming to Christ. here's, Here's another heavy. He saw you coming to Christ before time began. That's just what the Bible teaches. So when you wade into the theology of providence and sovereignty and foreknowledge, you wade into heavy, intellectual, mind-bending, challenging issues to understand. No wonder Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out. That's Romans 11.33. I didn't have that in the notes. Romans 11.33. So God determined it. 
but he's still holding Jesus' crucifiers accountable. Now, Peter continues in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I like, can we say that last part together? It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And you know what? It's impossible for death to keep its hold on you as a child of God. Because as he is, so are we in this world. And he was the first fruits of the resurrection. As he went up, you're going up. As death had to turn loose of him, death has to turn loose of you. As the grave could not hold him, the grave will not hold you. Amen. So then Peter closes out with the real zinger. This is what got them. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know, assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There he goes again, telling them they did it. Now the crowd is totally convicted. So verse 37, they heard that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answers and said to them, repent. Can we say that six-letter word together? Repent. Well, that's not a popular word in our day because we haven't done anything wrong, don't you know? We're little angels walking around with halos over our head in our culture. Nobody will fess up to doing anything wrong. We're masters at the blame game. But unless you repent, you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, he said, repent, and then let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive what, everybody? The gift of the Holy Spirit. What you have just seen us get, he's saying, you'll get likewise. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, notice the word repent. I want to just look at it for a minute. There is no salvation, folks, without repentance. There's not any. We've kind of watered down the gospel in our day, and we say things like, well, just believe on Jesus. Well, that's part of it. But if you believe on Jesus, then you must agree with Jesus. And what does Jesus say to us until we're saved, until we're born again? He says, you're in sin. We must agree with Jesus as we believe on Jesus and repent according to what he has shown us about ourselves, that there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all turned aside. We've all walked away from God. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, not of some of us, but of us all. So we must repent. There is no forgiveness without it, no salvation without it. It's the first step in reconciliation with God. No repentance, no salvation. Repent. Well, you could take that word to a college campus in our day, and they, and they will, if you make it out of there alive, well, you try to rain your guilt on me, but you are guilty. Until you're saved, you're extremely guilty. We all are. Then Peter says something that many latch onto who believe that water baptism is necessary for salvation. So let me deal with another golden calf here. (laughs) Notice what he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Well, that sounds clear to me. He's telling you that that you receive remission of sins when you're baptized in water. Isn't that what it sounds like? But do you know there's nothing in baptism itself that can wash away sin? Amen. 
That can be done only by the pardoning mercy of God through the atonement of Christ. Baptism, here's what it does. It expresses a willingness to be pardoned in that way because baptism illustrates and symbolizes the whole process of being saved. It's a solemn declaration of our conviction that there's no other way to obtain forgiveness than Jesus' blood. I got saved in juvenile home. There was no water to be baptized in. Are you going to tell me that if I'd gone back to my cell and let's say a couple of days later, they, somebody beat me to death, God forbid, but I know it's terrible, but like in prison, would I have gone to hell when I called out on Jesus and asked him to forgive me and I knew that he came into my heart? No. Water baptism is an act of obedience, but it's the blood that saves. Peter closes his altar call with the magnificent promise. You shall receive the gift. It's not earned. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, what a sermon that must have been. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard that sermon? See old salty Simon Peter stand up, Mr. Unlearned, uneducated, stand up and just rip into this massive crowd. And it says that at the close of his powerful Pentecost sermon, thousands were saved. Look at verse 40. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from what kind of generation? Are we in one of those? Oh, you better believe it. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about how many souls? Three thousand. Now that's an invitation. That'll make you go home feeling good about your message. 3,000 souls were added to them. Don't you know that was one gigantic baptism? Because it says they were all baptized in water. 3,000 of them. That took all day. Now we've got a baby church on our hands. Now we've got a baby church. And 3,000 people have just been born into it and baptized into this new church by the Holy Spirit. Now I want to show you some marks of this early church. And as I go over these marks, let me ask you to think, is that mark on me? Is that mark on us? Is that mark on a lot of churches I know about? Let's just read them. First, it was marked by the truth. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine. That's truth. That's Bible teaching. Doctrine is not a dry word. Doctrine is what I'm teaching you right now. It is extremely important. They continued steadfastly. They said, I'm going I'm to get into Bible teaching and nothing is going to take me from it. Nothing's going to stop me from it. The Holy Spirit, here's what was happening. He was already beginning to fulfill Jesus' promise that you find in the Gospel of John when he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. That's how they were able to write the Gospels, with clear memory. Because Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit falls, he's going to bring to your memory everything I've said to you. And that's beginning to happen now. So the early church put truth first. Can we say that together, truth first? They put truth first, not experience first, truth first. And that's the way you better always live. Never let experience negate truth. Second, it was marked by the tie, not just the truth, but the tie. And what I mean by that is that blessed tie 
that binds us together in Christian love. They were tied together. It says they continued together in the doctrine and in fellowship. John would later write in his epistle, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love the brethren. What an acid test that is. That's a litmus test. I wonder how many churches would feel real saved if you took that seriously. We know we have been saved if we love one another. Not if we're talking in tongues. Not if we're praying for the sick. Not if our church is big. But are we, do we love each other? That's the litmus test. So they walked in, say it with me, the truth. And in the tie, and the third mark of the early church was the table. It says, they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Now, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, which they regularly observe, which we regularly observe here. Uh, Per Jesus' command, who said, do this often to remember me. Okay? So, when you think about it, the Lord's Supper, this occurred to me today, when you think about it, it's really a companion, or sits right next to water baptism. And here's how they go together. In baptism, we are declaring our death with Christ. When we baptize somebody, we say, buried with him by baptism into his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. So the whole message of water baptism is your old life is left in that water. Your old life is buried in Christ, and you have been raised to walk in a new life, okay? So water baptism testifies to our death with Christ, but in the Lord's Supper, we show his death for us. The blood, the bread. He gave his body, he gave his blood. He died for us. No other person ever did that in history or ever will. The Lamb of God. Okay? So our death with Christ, his death for us. So they were marked by the truth, the tie, the table, and fourthly, the throne. It says they continued in prayers. Steadfastly. You could not get them out of prayer. Now, it's not saying they're praying 24-7. It's just saying they consistently prayed. So when it comes to the truth, where are you? The tie that binds, where are you? The table. What about the throne? Praying, going to the Lord regularly. This is what made this early embryonic baby church so strong. We're about to read what happened. Now, one thing about the prayers, the name of Jesus was was brand new as, as far as a prayer medium. Nobody had ever prayed in Jesus' name until Jesus came. They didn't do that in the Old Testament. They didn't know the name of Jesus. But Jesus said, you'll pray in my name. So the name of Jesus opened up prayer opportunities never before known. And it gave them, and it gives us instant access to the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy, find grace to help us in the hour of need. We can come boldly washed in the blood and in that name without fear of being rejected. Now, let's look at what this did caused around them and in them as they continued in these four things. Let's say the four things again, can we? The truth, the tie, the table, and the throne. 
Now, let's look at what it did. We first see a sanctified people. It says, fear came upon every soul. That's talking about the fear of God. Fear came upon every soul. Now, let me tell you something about you and me. We will never sanctify ourselves, which means set yourself aside unto God. We will never do it without the fear of the Lord. We will not remove ourselves from the world unless we have the fear of God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is what causes men, the Bible says, to depart from sin. So when fear came upon them, the fear of God, when the Spirit fell, it caused them to be a sanctified people. They were in the world but not of the world. Second, we find a spectacular. Now I'm using alliteration here to the nth degree so it'll be easy to remember. Alliteration, using the same uh, letter before every word. You notice all the S's? Are you with me? I'm using alliteration so you can remember them. Okay, so we find first a sanctified people, then a, but then a spectacular people. And what I mean by that is, look what it says. Many wonders and signs were done through this company who were observing the truth, the tie, the table, and the throne. You could not ignore the supernaturally empowered early church. They just stood out like a city on a hill. But then we also see a single people. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It says, all who believed were together. Now, what is the Bible? What is one of the metaphors the Bible uses for the church? The what of Christ? Body. So that if I were tonight to slam my finger with a hammer by mistake, I guarantee you my whole body would pay attention. And my whole body would go into motion to touch that finger and to take care of that finger, bandage that finger, and cry over that finger. Because if part of my body hurts, the rest of my body has no peace till it's fixed. That's the body of Christ. So when I say they were a single people, what I mean is they were together not divided. They cared for each other's needs. When one hurt, they all hurt. When one rejoiced, they all rejoiced. Is that, is that true of, of us? I, you know, not because it's the church that I pastor, but I'm going to tell you right now, by the grace of God, we have really such a, such a united church. And I've noticed when one hurts, other members of the body run to them. I've noticed it and care about them and pray for them. Are we perfect? No. Are we sincere? Yes. So a single people. But then they were also a sacrificial people. Look at verse 45. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. <laughs> I've had people say to me, see, that right there is propagating communism. Because they sold their possessions and nobody had anything of their own. But there's a big difference. Under communism, you're forced. Here, it was voluntary. I'm giving it to others because I'm moved to do it and I'm doing it. The spirit of greed, notice this, and selfishness was totally broken off this early church. They sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anybody had need. 
So say with me, they were sanctified. They were spectacular. They were a single people and a sacrificial people. But there's more. They were a spiritual people. Look at verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. How often was this happening? Daily. Now notice how the Bible describes true spirituality by the temple and by the table. Here's what I mean by that. This early church went to church and worshiped together. I've had Christians say to me, you know, Jeff, I'm just not into going to local church anymore. I, I, you know, we're fine. We sit at home. We do communion at home with each other, and, and um, we, we watch so-and-so on TV, and, and we're really good. We're growing. We're, we're, we're very healthy spiritually. And I want to say, really? So you're going to call the Bible a lie? Really? You ready to stand up against a verse? Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some is. These people that say, I'm going to stay home and watch uh, whoever on TV and have communion, they're, they're missing the whole idea that we're to be together. Joint supplying to joint. Uh, sinew to sinew, the whole idea of the body of Christ is that we gather together. So the early church went to church all the time and they worshiped together and they went to each other's homes for fellowship and breaking of bread. They were continually together encouraging one another and, and praying for one another. So in other words, true spirituality transforms the normal and the mundane going to somebody's house into something sacred because we're fellowshipping. We're fellowshipping. There's more. They were a singing people. It says they were known in, uh, for praising God. And this is one of the outstanding earmarks of the early church. You know what made the early church attractive? They were happy. That's why I tell people, God's greatest billboard is your face. So when you go out there, what do you look like? You were baptized in pickle juice or do you have joy? Do you have joy? Do, do you look like you're enjoying this thing called Christianity? Or do you look like it's a great big burden? Jesus, Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So if you've got something heavy you're carrying around, it's not Jesus. So, so your face, a smiling, joyful face, is God's greatest advertisement. Not a billboard, not a sign. They had joy. They had the joy of the Lord, and it manifested in singing and praising God. When was the last time you sang to the Lord when you weren't in church? Just before you got here. Good. I mean, think about it. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not here to convict you. I'm just throwing it out there. I have to tell myself to do it. My family is a... I came from a family of natural warriors and people who did not have a whole lot of natural endorphins. <laughs> you know what that is? We're, we're these people that are always bubbly and always happy and always, they make me sick. Because that's not me. No, not really. I appreciate them. I need to be around them. I need their help. It's easy for me to kind of brood and look at the serious things in life. And so I have to tell myself, hey, Jeff, get over it. 
and, and sing to the Lord, thank the Lord, and, and practice joy. Practice joy. Practice the joy of the Lord. Okay. Finally and last, they were a successful people. It says they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So their outreach to the Jerusalem community was amazingly successful. I want you to notice how the church grew. It says the Lord added to the church, again, how often? Daily. Those who were being saved. Do you see a correlation between the four things they were continuing steadfastly in on a daily basis and the fact that God gave them daily harvest. The only way that anybody can truly be added to the church is if the Lord adds them. The psalmist said, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I've seen people try to build a church out of their own strength and out of their own charisma or talent or whatever. And I could tell, I've, I've, I've listened to some of the, I could tell some of the ones I've gone to, to hear who were trying to start a church, I could tell that the one who had set himself in as pastor didn't have a shepherd's voice. He meant well, perhaps, but really wasn't a pastor. I've had guys, I have friends who tried pastoring, finally said, man, I got out of that as fast as I could when I realized I wasn't called to it. They can preach, but they weren't pastors. And then I've seen pastors try to be evangelists. They weren't evangelists. They tried. They tried talking like Billy. And Jesus, you know, Jesus. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And give the invitation and everybody just sits there. Hey, dude, you're a pastor. You're not an evangelist. I'm just saying... Except the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain that build it. And the Lord was giving them daily, daily harvest. All right. I want you to stand with me. And we're done with chapter 2. Can you believe it? Now, let's. we did a lot of S's there. And I want us to say them together and remember them. Because what a description of what the church should be. Amen? So say with me, they were a sanctified people. Spectacular people, a single people, a sacrificial people, a spiritual people, a singing people, and a successful people. In a few short years, this first church of the early church centered in Jerusalem grew to tens of thousands of new members that the Lord added to them. And they would only have 40 years And then the fall of Jerusalem came in 70 AD. They had 40 years to do what they were given to do. And then the church was scattered throughout all of Asia, all the Greek world, Greek-speaking world, because Jerusalem was leveled per the prediction of Jesus. We have a certain amount of time. Do you know that? We have a certain amount of time. They had 40 years. I don't know how long we have to do what God's given us to do. I know I want to do it. And I want all those S's, all those words to exemplify this church. Because we just lift our hands to the Lord. Lord, we just thank you for the mighty Holy Spirit that fell. And how we need him, Lord. 
We won't reach anyone without him. We won't have any impact without him. We won't be influential without him. Or we just want to flow with you. We want to flow with your spirit. And we want to ride that wave. And only you know, Lord, how long we have to do what you've given us to do. So help us to do it with all our might. Now I want you to pray to say, Lord, I give myself to you to, for the Holy Spirit to use. In these last days, 